several hundred people in this room today and I'm quite confident there's many people in this room today that are going through a struggle going through a trial there's a crisis in your life you don't feel like he's still moving and you wonder sometimes perhaps if the songs we sing or maybe the things we say or the expressions of others are empty and hollow and meaningless and I want to assure you today that God is faithful and if you'll keep following him he'll bring you through you'll keep trusting in him He'll give you victory. Keep pressing forward in Jesus' name. Praise God. Praise God. What a joy to feel the presence of the Lord in this place. I want to go to the book of Revelation, if you have your Bible with me. Revelation chapter 1. Good to see everyone in the house of the Lord today. Those of you that are online, thank you for joining us. I know it's a little challenging to... Um, watch online and uh, if you can I want to encourage you to join us you'd feel a whole lot better here I know uh, if you can't though keep keep tuning in where you are and hopefully hopefully some of this faith can uh, join with your faith and you can feel encouraged today amen why don't you look at the person next to you and smile really big there you go. See, that just made it, that made the whole place a little better right there. Amen. The book of Revelation, by the way, the, the, the name of the book of Revelation is singular. It's not Revelations, plural. What's being shared here by John is a revelation, not many. Revelation 1 beginning with verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, that would be what we would know as Asia Minor, maybe some of Eurasia today. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was, and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord 
who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. I want to preach today, continuing our thought from last week. Again, I want to preach today to you the end time church. The end time church. Again, look at your neighbor and say, we are the end time church. Amen. We are the end time church. Amen. The Lord bless you. You may be seated. I don't know if that causes alarm. don't know if it causes fear or anxiety to know that you're part of the end time church. But you are part of the end time church. In fact, there's never been a part of the church that wasn't part of the end time church. The book of Revelation was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Seven churches, probably not seven congregations. Each of those churches probably consisted of multiple congregations. But seven churches in seven cities. The book of Revelation is addressed to the seven. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those seven churches were the ones that received this this. Uh, book that we now have in our Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book contains the following very simple outline. Chapter 1, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Three parts. The things that you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And though the timing, the timing of the events in the book of Revelation may be somewhat unclear to us, which is a topic really beyond the scope of today's message, it is very clear that for these seven churches, at least some of the events in Revelation were to take place very soon for them. In fact, if you read chapter 1, verse 1, the way the book opens is like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. Many translations simply saying, soon take place. Skip down to verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. The seven churches that received this letter were very close in time, and the events in this book were, at least in part, to take place in a very short period of time. Whether the events of Revelation are segregated into the things that happened back then and maybe things that are going to happen at some point in the future, or whether the events in Revelation have multiple fulfillments, some coming to pass then and some coming to pass in the future. You see that with many prophecies in Scripture. No matter how all that works out, one thing is certain. Some of the calamity in the book of Revelation was to soon befall the seven churches of Asia Minor. It wasn't all just long distance millennia away 
for them. Some of these things were, were, were to be experienced in the lifetimes of those people who were receiving this word. This raises some very important questions. If these churches were sure to see calamity and trials and chaos and a future that was sure to be shaken, and if these churches were certainly the ones to whom this book was addressed, then how were they to live and how were they to function in such a time as that? How were they to prepare themselves? And how were they to respond? What were they to do with this letter? What were they to do with their lives? What was their response to this warning? What was their response to this, these events that were soon to come upon them? How should they prepare? What should they do? How could they endure such events? It is very interesting because chapters 2 and 3 actually address this very issue. Before we get into the allegory and the symbolism and the beasts and the colors and the vials and the trumpets and all of these things of which we are not quite certain at all points as to their meaning. Before we get into visions of destruction and before we get into those sorts of things, before, before even the vision of the throne of heaven in chapter 4, the churches in chapter 2 and 3, the churches are prepared for what's coming. The churches are told, this is what you got to do. The churches are told, this is how you have to live. This is how you have to face it. This is how you overcome. And like a military inspection where the soldiers are standing before the officers, each and every church is reviewed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Are they prepared for the end time? Are they strong enough to get through what's coming? What should they do? How should they ready themselves? What we have in chapters 2 and 3 are the direct evaluations, admonitions, and commands to the end-time church of the first century, and these come directly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. These admonitions can also, though, be instructive for us as we evaluate our own preparedness for whatever portion of this yet remains. If we want to know if we will be capable, if we want to know if we'll be ready, if we want to know if we will endure, if we want to know what steps we should take, then we should take the same steps that these churches took. If these prophecies were written to them and they're told what they have to do to overcome, then whatever portion of this remains for us, we must listen to the same admonitions that they were given by Jesus to make sure that we too will overcome. What does an end-time church look like? What does an end-time church, how does it manifest? What are its qualities? What are, what are the, the characteristics? What are the, what are the qualities of a healthy, robust, vibrant end-time church? What does an end-time church need in order to survive? What does it need in order to thrive? What, what should an end-time church do to be focused and not be distracted? As we read the admonition to each one of these churches, seven in all, we get a glimpse into what is important to God 
And what is essential for an end-time church? What are the qualities and traits for them to overcome and to have victory? The first church that is evaluated, I don't know if they felt sort of exposed by having to go first, but the first church in line was the church of Ephesus. And the first church was evaluated by Jesus, and this is what he told them. To the angel, that word angel, uh, the, the Greek word is angelos, it means messenger. Many presume he's talking to the pastor of the church when he uses angel in these passages. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this. These things say, say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved and you have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Jesus commended the Ephesian church for several things. A church that was filled with good works. A church that was not idle, but a church that was active, a church that did things, a church, a church even here that he describes as, as one that works hard. In other words, not, not a spectator church, not a lazy church, not a church that is nonchalant and flippant about the things of God, but a church that worked hard. This was a church that had actually rejected false prophets. In other words, this is a church that actually had some some commitment to theology and some commitment to doctrine and some commitment to the things that had been delivered to them. This was a church that held true. This was a church that held firm to the doctrine and, and people that would come through that preached some other gospel, they would filter them out and send them on their way. This was a church that persevered, a church that was faithful, a church that kept going, a church that was lo loyal to their heritage and a church that just kept pushing they had patiently endured, even the Bible here says, in the words of Jesus, laboring for the Lord's namesake. In other words, there's, there's, there, there's something valuable about the reputation of God and the value of His name, and they labored to protect that. They labored in, uh, for the value and the preciousness of the name of the Lord. This is not a lightweight church. This is not a church that took their responsibilities with, with casualness. This is not a church that, that didn't care. In fact, it goes on in a few verses later and it says they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans and we're not quite sure exactly of this group and what all they believed, but it was clearly a heretical group that had emerged in the church. And you can read even later, they evidently were still hanging around and in the church. But, but in Ephesus, the Nicolaitans, they, their, their works were hated by the church. Sounds like a church to attain to. They, they've set a high bar for us. They have, they have set the bar really high, and this gives us insight into qualities that are approved by Jesus for an end-time church. Do we possess these qualities? Do we possess these, these things that are important? What do we learn from these statements? We learn that mission matters. We learn that God is concerned that a church works hard, that God is 
concerned that a church is engaged in the harvest. God is concerned that a church really values the work of the kingdom of God. That, that, the, the, that the doctrine and the theology and the importance of what we believe. He values that and we should value that doctrinal purity matters and mission matters and kingdom work matters. It's not just where we come to get blessed or entertained but we have seized onto something that is part of the kingdom of God and it has value and we're to engage it and we're to work really hard at it. These are kingdom principles that Jesus affirmed in the church of Ephesus. Things that we all would do well to inspect and evaluate in our own lives. But Jesus also had a complaint against the church of Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, in spite of all this, had fallen short. And their failure would on a casual reading seem innocuous. In fact, we typically, a church that like demonstrated all that, a church that persevered and a church that kicked out false doctrine and a church that worked hard at the gospel and a church that protected the Lord's namesake, I mean, a church like that, we typically would not consider this what seemingly little minor failure they have would be worth judgment. But their failure was of a grave concern to the Lord. So much so, he told them, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. In other words, they, they could not retain their spiritual status as a church unless they repented of their offense. And all their works and all their loyalty to doctrine and all their good works and all their hating of evil and all of their purging of heresies and the heretics couldn't compensate for this thing that they lacked. And all their good works were no substitute and their great shortcoming that threatened their very status as a church is simply this in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works, or else I, this is the Lord Jesus, I personally, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. They're not in sexual immorality. One of these other churches may be. They're not in gross idolatry. They're championing the name of the Lord. They're kicking out false doctrine. Doctrinally, they're pure. The issue is they have lost their first love. They no longer loved to the degree that they once did. They worked hard. They protected the doctrine. But they had lost their love, their passion, and their extreme devotion, and their priority of God. A loveless Christianity is inadequate for the end times. A loveless Christianity is inadequate for the end times. 
Did you know that the gospel itself is predicated and built upon love? What does the Bible say? It says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. In other words, the initiative for salvation comes from God because He loves us. And the basis of our relationship with God is ultimately rooted in love. Jesus said the greatest two commandments are just simply these. You've got to love God and you've got to love neighbor. In other words, you can summarize all the theology and you can summarize all the law and you can summarize all, all the doctrine. You can condense all of that down into love. And therefore, if you have the letter of the law and if you have the letter of the doctrine and if you have all that, but you don't have that love, you don't have what the gospel's all about. After, you may remember this, after, after Peter denied the Lord, in Jesus' trials, while he was being tried, Peter was out, out in the courtyard at a distance, warming by the fire, and, and three times he denied that he knew Jesus. Three times he denied that he knew that, that Lord in there. He was, he was accused because of his accent. And some people thought they recognized him. And Peter, Peter said, I don't know him. It was sometime later after the resurrection, there's a reunion between Jesus and Peter. And Jesus comes back to this one question. He says, Peter, do you love me? He didn't grill. He didn't grill Peter about whom do men say that I am. That's long gone in the past. We solved that. He's not asking, do you believe I am the Son of God? We've already solved that. The question after the resurrection and after the failure of Peter, as they're standing face to face on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus says, Peter, I need to know if you love me. Peter said, yes, I love you. And Jesus Jesus drilling him again, asked him again, do you love me? Three times on the shores of that lake, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Because Jesus, Jesus knew that love was the fundamental foundation that was necessary if Peter was going to endure the next trial. Because you can have the knowledge and you can have the theology and you can have all the books in your head, but if you don't love Him, you won't endure the trial. Jesus had great plans for Peter, but these plans were contingent on Peter's love. Because you can be used of God to the extent that you love God. You can be used of God to the extent that you love God. What you, what you love ultimately determines your reality. John pointed out, the same writer of the book of Revelation in his epistle, his first epistle. John pointed out that that our love determines our spiritual standing. John, you know the passage, 1 John 2, 15. He says, don't love the world. We all check that off, right? I mean, any professing believers in here, raise your hand, I love the world. But then we kind of forget the second part of that. Neither the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, he says, what does he say? The love of the Father is not in him. 
Because love is an exclusive devotion. If you are, if you're in a, use the marriage example for relationship, it is an exclusive love. I don't care what the songs say, you can't love more than one spouse at a time. Because by definition, a love, love is a forsaking and a cleaving to. Love is abandoning and showing loyalty to. That's what biblical love is. And John is making the point here in his epistle, there's only room for you to love one thing. Ultimately, you will either love God or you will love the world. And you can have a knowledge of theology and still love the world. You can recite all the doctrine and you can quote all the books and you can know all the scholars and you can know the creeds and you can even know all the Pentecostal publishing house books and still not love God. And this is what's popping up at Ephesus. An end time church and Jesus is saying, your candle's not going to remain if you don't know how to love He's saying, you got all the good stuff down, you got the doctrine down, you've got all that, and you're really hard workers, that's good for you. But don't forget, you have got to fall in love with God all over again. He said, you've lost your first love. Your first love. Do you remember when you first found Him? Or rather, when He first found you? Do you remember that time when you received the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Or maybe when you came out of the waters of baptism? Do you remember that excitement? Do you remember that depth? Do you remember that sense that you're going to be used of God? Young people, do you remember coming back from a camp or a youth congress or an awakening and you have that deep down sense, I'm going to do everything for God and over and over and over, not just the youth but the adults, over and over and over and over again in those moments we fall in love and we give our lives to God, but then it doesn't last. Why? Because we've left our first love. And what he's saying to Ephesus is you got to stir up that love because if you don't have love, head knowledge is not enough. Doctrinal arguments are not enough. You cannot serve God by facts alone. Dry academic positions are inadequate. You cannot stay busy enough to stay safe. You have got to have your first love back with God. Do you remember you gave him everything? Do you remember you gave him everything? Do you remember you wanted to serve him? Some of you even said you'd be missionaries. Some of you said you'd give up everything. Some of you said you'd do this, that, and the other. Why? Because you loved him. And in that moment, that love, that love takes over. Why? Why? Because love is ultimate devotion. Love is ultimate devotion. Love will motivate you to do what a job description will not motivate you to do. Love will motivate you to do what the law will not motivate you to do. So I guess the question for us, if we're going to be an end time church, have we lost our first love? That's true of a church. It's also true of us as individuals. Our first love. When we first came to know the Lord, and we had that zeal. And we had that passion. We weren't as easily distracted by the things in church that distract us now. Because we were in love. We've often heard the saying, love is blind. Watching two young people fall in love can make you sick. 
They just go stone blind to stuff, you know? I don't know if you noticed, but there's a problem there. Can't see it. Don't see it. Why? Because the love is blinding. The love is allowing a person to give solely and completely and absolutely their lives over. And that's the way we came to the Lord. That's the way we first loved Him. We gave it all in. We gave it all in. And what happens to all of us? All of us. It happens to us. In time, we learn more, we learn more than we can use of Scripture. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be able to use all of it. But we start getting sidetracked on little rabbit trails. Whereas when we first came to know the Lord, every little passage sent us into action. Every little passage required a response from us. And now we're like, well, I don't know, and this and that and this, and what about that and that and the other, and yeah, it's technical, and I, you know, this, that, and it was showing all this and all that. And that. when we first got in church, we didn't really care what other people thought. But time, time has a way of dulling our love. I want to ask us all a question Is our faith individually? Is our faith primarily characterized by love? My spiritual life, my church life, my private life, my relationship with God, is it primarily characterized by love? Does love most adequately describe my relationship to God? Yes, we are faithful. Yes, we still believe the right things. But do we have our first love? If you say yes, and I think most of us would want to say yes. If you say yes, then what are the evidences of that love? What are the evidences in my life? That the same love of God is here today as it was when I was baptized and received the Spirit in 1976. Moments along the way where I answered the call of God. Moments along the way where I was willing to walk away from other things to say yes to God. Moments where I told Him, I will go and I will do and I will be everything. Moments where I told him the things of this world don't matter. Moments where I literally put everything on the altar. Those moments in my past, in my life, in my story. Moments where there were opportunities, where I personally have been hurt, where I have been offended, where I have been stabbed in the back, where I have been done wrong, but where I determined I've got to love God and I've got to keep going. Those things in my past are what brought me to this point, but I still have to answer that question every day. Have I lost my first love? 
There need to be moments frequently when we kindle the love and say, am I still willing to follow you wherever you would lead me? Am I still willing to serve you no matter where the road will go? Do you still have my life? Do you still have my all? Is the claim to mission still alive in me? Is the claim to my wealth still alive in me? Is my sacrifice still available to you? Am I still willing to tell someone about Jesus? Am I still willing to find the place of prayer and pray until something happens. These are the things we did with our first love. Our first love. Many of you in your first love gave what you couldn't afford. Be it your money or your time, your commitment. Why? Because you loved. Love will always take you farther than rules. Love will always take you farther than law. Love will always take you farther than minimal requirements. Love will always take you farther than what a church teaches. Love will always take you farther than the average. Love will always take you farther than anything else in your life will take you. If you fall in love with God. That love of God, in closing, that love of God also manifests in us as a love of, for neighbor and a love for our brothers and sisters. In fact, John, that same John, in his first epistle, he says, if someone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. The best way to get over what's between you and other people is to love God. Here's what happens. When we fall out with other people, we allow that to keep us from pursuing our relationship with God. We're bent, we're torqued, we're hurt, so we don't pray. We don't do the things we know we should do. And the falling out with people hinders our relationship with God when it should be the other way around. When we fall head over heels in love with God, it informs the way in which we interact with people. Yes, people are crazy. People are imperfect. They're flawed. They're broken. They messed up. They're goofed up. They're all kinds of up. But I can tell you this. If you're in love with God... If your first love is as passionate for God as it was, I'm telling you, it enables and empowers you to live out that love with the others in your life. I want us to stand close in prayer. I'm preaching this month on the end time church. And an end time church... An end time church, a church that will survive through trials and tribulations and hardships and persecutions, no matter what those may be. Individuals' faith who will take them through difficulties and circumstances and disappointments. It's not just because you worked hard at church. It's not just because you kept the doctrine. It's not just because you kicked out the heretics. Yes, all that's good. But Jesus tells Ephesus, this is where Paul preached, had that great revival and had that great revival and put the silversmith out of business. 
great revival in Ephesus. You can read it in the book of Acts. Just a few, few decades later, the passion has waned. And they've got nice big granite stone columns and, and plaques in their foyer that have their doctrine on it. Kind of like new life. It's engraved. This is what we believe. But the fire, the passion, the ultimate devotion to God, it kind of faded. And as loyal and as pure and as faithful as they were, Jesus comes to them and he says, I've got something against you. This is not a head game, folks. You're not going to win the spiritual battle because of a set of facts. You have got to be passionately in love with God. And he tells them, he tells them, you need to return you need to return to your first love. Feel the love of the Lord in this building. Amen. I want us all to spend some time in prayer this morning. And uh, I'm going to come down here and pray with you. I want us to just say, Lord. He told them to do their first works. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Because he just pointed out all the wonderful works they're doing. Good things. Good things. But they somehow had walked away from the first thing. Things that lend a relationship with God. I want us to just say yes to Him today. I want the Lord to just let us feel His love. I want us to take pleasure again in Him. It's not a discipline, it's not a have to. We're not talking about what I got to come to church, I got to do this or that. But I love Him. I love Him. It was John again who says we love him because he first loved us. I wonder if you could just spend some time talking to him this morning before you leave. Oh, I want to love him. I want everything in my heart to be given to him. I don't want there to be distractions and sideshows. And yes, there's difficulties. There's things we have to work through. There's hardships. There's struggles. But... We can do it if we love Him. Would you return to your first works this morning? Would you return to that first love where everything was pure? Everything was, everything about God was what you wanted. and There weren't restrictions and there weren't, there weren't sort of limitations on what you would do for God. But there wasn't like, you know, little categories. It was just, no, you were all in because you loved Him. I wonder if you could just begin to rekindle that. 
Maybe you could just start by just telling him, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Or maybe I want to love you, Lord. I want to love you more. I want to love you like I used to. I want to love you with all my heart. All my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength. That's the way he told us to love him. Heart, my mind, my soul, my strength. Let's pray this morning. Just spend some time loving on him today. God, I want to turn over every part of my heart to you. I want to turn over every part of my life to you. I want to love you. I want you to be the biggest part of me. I want you to be the biggest part of my life. I want to please you. I want to serve you. I want to know you deeper. I want to know you more. I want to grow towards you, Lord. God, I want the world and the things of the world to grow dim as I turn my attention to you. I want to find satisfaction in you. I want to find fulfillment in you. I want to find my joy in you. I want my life to be oriented around you, my schedule, my dreams, my goals, my ambitions. I want to think of you. I want to think of you most of my waking moments. I want to honor you with my life. I want to honor you with the thoughts and the deeds and the the goals and plans that I have. I want to honor you with the way I spend my days. I want to love you. I want to love you, Lord. I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want to give myself to you. I want to get beyond just doctrine. I want to get beyond just guarding and protecting truth. But I want to get into a renewed relationship with you. Hallelujah. That's it. Would you just drill into that kind of prayer a little longer? Just kind of ease into his presence this morning. God, I want to in moments like these be sensitive to you. I want to, in moments like these, allow you to heal me. Allow you to speak to me, Lord. Allow you to do a new work in me. I want to love you, Lord. Hallelujah. That's it. Come on, church, would you pray? Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's it. Just talk to him. If you love somebody, you just talk to them. You want to talk to them. If you love somebody, you want, to, you want to spend some time with them. You want to be with them. Hallelujah. Come on, church. Let's reorient. We've had so many distractions the last couple of years. and I know it's worn us down. It's made a lot of us tired and weary. Hallelujah. only be used by God to the extent that you can love him Peter you gotta love him if you're moving forward Peter come on somebody love him today if you want to be used you gotta love him
I'm falling in love. Come on. Hallelujah. Come on, you want to be used by Him, you got to love Him. Do you love me, Peter? Yes. Do you love me, Peter? Yes. Do you love me, Peter? Yes. I love you. Hallelujah. Come on, lean into it for a moment here. Hallelujah. Just one. 